So several years ago, I was speaking at a, at a youth camp retreat, a uh, very informal one, uh, in Bullard's Bar, California. It's a reservoir that is north and west of Lake Tahoe, kind of in placer gold country, a lot of lodgepole pines, really beautiful place. And um, we were staying at one of those group campsites, you know, where you can fit like 50 tents in there, and we had all these coolers and stuff. And in the morning, we would wake up, and there's all this evidence that raccoons were getting into our things, you know, and garbage everywhere. And so one night, we thought it would be kind of fun just... To, to kind of wear the kids out and maybe spook them out a little bit. Let's go on a night hike, right? So we, there's a trail that kind of goes around the campsite, and um, it was it was almost a full noon, so very bright out. And so we took flashlights, but we decided not to use them just to add to the suspense, right? So we're going down the trails, and every once in a while we would see these beady little eyes from the bushes and you know the raccoons and uh, the, the the noise of teenage girls. Talking that we would scare the raccoons away, and we would just keep walking and walking and try and scare each other. Uh, well, anyway, we keep walking, and all of a sudden, up on the trail this time, not in the bushes, we see beady eyes. Only these beady eyes were a little bit higher off the ground, right, than the raccoons. And so one of the youth leaders had his flashlight. I'm like, we should turn that on, right? He flashes the flashlight of the trail, and of course, it's a black bear staring right at us. Now, I'll never forget what I heard next. A kid in the back, a ninth grader, says, turn off the flashlight. Like, out of sight, out of mind? Like, if you turn off the light, the bear's going to go away or something? It stuck with me all these years because once the light is on, you can't take it back. You can't take back what you saw. You have to deal with it. I mean, you can turn off the light, but there's still going to be a bear in the trail. Now in our case, a dozen girls start screaming at the top of their lungs like a B-rated horror movie, and the rest of us guys, we did the same thing. And that bear didn't stand a chance. I mean, that bear took off, and we took off, and I don't think we ever saw each other again. But this evening, we're going to continue on in John's Gospel, the ninth chapter. Throughout John's Gospel, he's been telling us that light, the light, is breaking into the world. And that this light is none other than Jesus the Christ. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it, cannot overpower it. We learn this from the first chapter of John. When Jesus shines his light into the world, we see truth. That many of our ways about thinking about God, many of the ways we think about people, many of the ways we think about happiness, many of the ways we think about life are not what God intended for us. That's one of the things that happens when light shines into the world. We see what's actually there. When Jesus enters the world with his light, we realize that there's a bear standing in the path. And the temptation, I think if you think with me on this, you'll know it's true. The temptation is to turn off the light, to hide back in the darkness, to not deal with reality, to pretend everything's okay. John wants us to see the truth, and he wants us to embrace the truth. When Jesus enters the world, he wants us to see... That there is a better way of living, a way of eternal, wonderful, abundant life. The light, Jesus, is supposed to be good news. John wrote down an account of Jesus 
meeting a blind man and healing this blind man. In fact, we read about the beginning of the story last week when we looked at John 9, 1 through 12. And if I could sum it up for us, it goes like this. John wants us to see that we are all born blind. That we all need help to see like the blind man needs help to see. Jesus has broken into our world. He is the light of the world. And Jesus makes everything visible, exposes all the lies. And then Jesus, Jesus does something amazing. All throughout John's gospel, where does Jesus come from? John tells us he's sent. He's sent from the Father to do the will of the Father. In John 9, 1 through 12, Jesus does the amazing thing of including us in that mission. He says, we are sent to do the will of him who, who sent me. That means that we are sent ones with this incredible message of light, good news, hope for the world. And let me just say this before we even get going. This passage, and really the Bible period, speaks to two audiences every single time. So, if you are here this evening and you've received the light and you are enjoying your relationship with Jesus, this message is telling us that we are sent to share this good news. Now, if you're here this evening and you're saying, you know, I feel like I, I'm not really experiencing much light right now. This message also says to you, the light is breaking in, and there's good news and hope for you, too. We've got to walk these two things in balance. Now, this evening, we're going to pick up the story in 9, and we're going to look up uh, at verses 13 through 34. And in this section of Scripture, the blind man who was healed by Jesus encounters opposition. Opposition. And as we look at the text, right before I read it, I want us to consider two things. First, opposition in the story helps us believe. When we read about opposition in the story, it's actually going to help us believe. And I'll show that throughout, throughout the text. The second thing is opposition in our lives, not, not in this Bible story, but in your life and mine, opposition in our lives helps us believe. And my job is to help you become believers of those two points. All right. Would you stand with me as I read John 9, 13 through 34? And just to kind of get a little bit more, I'm going to start in, uh, I'm going to start in verse 10, actually. John 9, verse 10. The man has just been healed, okay? And so the crowds were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man, if you like to mark in your Bible, Underline the man. All right? That's yeah, the man. The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went. I went away and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. So they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was the Sabbath, dun, 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 on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, well, he applied clay to my eyes and I washed and I see. And therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? 
And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, and if you want to underline this, He is a prophet. He is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight. So they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he see? And his parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid. His parents said this because they were afraid. They're afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was going to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, You know, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you didn't listen. Why do you want to, why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become his disciples too, do you? And they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, I don't even know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing. You don't know where he's from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not fear hear sinners. But if anyone is God-fearing, he does his will. He hears him. Since the beginning of time, it's never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him and said, You were born entirely of sins, and you're teaching us. And they cast him out. You may be seated. The man was born blind, he was healed, and he doesn't know much more than that. He knows the man who healed him's name is Jesus, and he thinks that he's just a man. He doesn't know that Jesus is anything more than just a guy who put spit and mud in his eyes and now he sees. So the people do what most people in first century would do. They take this guy to the authorities, right? They take him to the leaders, their spiritual authorities, to find out how this might have happened to give glory to God. Maybe the leaders will know what to make of this miraculous thing. But then John adds a twist to the story. And he did this to us in chapter 5, if you remember that one, the story of Jesus healing the lame man. We get partway through the story and John tells us, and it was the Sabbath when this happened. And this always adds peril to the story because the Pharisees believed that Jesus doing this was breaking the Sabbath. So, it is the Sabbath when Jesus healed this man and the Pharisees begin their investigation. 
The man recounts what has happened. He mentions how Jesus applied the clay to his eyes and told him to wash. And the Pharisees get all worked up about this. And Tim Land reminded me last week of this crazy rule that the Pharisees had about Sabbath. They even said that a man, only a man, ladies, a man could spit on the Sabbath day only if the spit hit something like a stone or a brick or something hard. If the spit landed on the ground, it turns into what? Clay or mud, which is the building block of a brick, which to them was work. I mean, does that sound ridiculous? Okay, it sounds ridiculous. Now, I kind of get it, actually. That's how ridiculous I am. I kind of get, you know, they're, they're zealous to protect the Sabbath. It was a command from God, and they're trying to figure out how do we hold this day holy. And so I kind of get that. Not really, but kind of. But what I don't get, and what is very ridiculous, and what John wants us to see here, is that their thinking is extremely warped. Jesus has healed a man born blind. And they're talking about spit on the ground on the Sabbath day. Let me ask you this. What is holiness? What is holiness? In the gospel stories, holiness is how we treat other people. That's what God wants us to see. It's in the prophets. It's in the gospels. Holiness is not refraining from spitting on the ground. When a man's life has been liberated, made free from blindness. Wow. And here's the crazy thing. Jesus healed this man born blind. The same Jesus who also healed a lame man on the Sabbath. The Pharisees were witness to that one. They had also heard that Jesus had healed or fed 5,000 people in the wilderness. They knew about that. This is the same Jesus who claimed to be the bread of life. This is the same Jesus who said, I am the living water. This is the same Jesus who said, I am the light of the world. This is the same Jesus who is claiming to be the Yahweh God that they are protecting. And they miss it. Now do you see why Jeannie read Psalm 42 earlier? That prophecy is about the leaders of Israel. God is saying, I am right in front of you doing these things. I want to rescue you, but you won't even hear me. You won't see what I'm doing. Now, how ironic is this? The God of the universe has come. He's doing all these things only God can do, saying all these things only God can say. And the very guys who are supposed to get it, who are supposed to be experts in Scripture, are mad that he spit on the ground. This opposition in Scripture, point number one, helps us believe. Why? Because we read this and we say, that is ridiculous. Jesus has done the things of God and says the things of God, he must be, I'm just saying. It makes the Pharisees look ridiculous. All this evidence in their face. But if God looked like that guy, homeless, wandering Jesus, doing things that, like spitting on the ground, if God's going to look like that, they'd rather not follow him. And they'd rather follow their idea of God instead. Oh, we need to be careful about that. 
we need to be careful that we don't have God so figured out that when we encounter something out of the ordinary or something that doesn't look quite right, that we don't just brush it aside as ungodly. So, these leaders choose to focus on an infraction of their minute law instead of rejoicing that a man's life has been set free. And in effect, this light is shining. They see the bear on the trail, right? And they want to turn the flashlight off. They want to pretend that nothing happened. So they come up with two arguments, and this is where it really starts to get ironic. The Pharisees, the ones who are supposed to be the authorities in Scripture, they're supposed to be the authorities in spiritual things, make two arguments against Jesus that just don't stand up. Here's the first one. They claim Jesus can't be from God. Why? Because he works on the Sabbath. Now, we've already seen in John 5 that they said this to him before. And Jesus says, guess what? I'm sent from the Father. And who works on the Sabbath? The Father works on the Sabbath. And in fact, the Pharisees, they believed God worked on the Sabbath. Why? Because babies are born on the Sabbath. The rain falls on the Sabbath. The sun shines and the crops grow on the Sabbath. The earth is still spinning on the Sabbath. And they believe God, and I believe God, does all those things. He holds us together. If God stopped thinking about you right now, your atoms would fall apart. You think it's physics or biology. It's God holding the universe together. You've got to read Colossians 1. Yes. God is always working. And in fact, what's really crazy is that the Pharisees would break the law if the eighth day after a child was born fell on Sabbath because they would circumcise the child. That's work. But they would do it for their custom and break the Sabbath. So, they're saying that Jesus can't be from God because he works on the Sabbath. That doesn't stand up. The second thing, another faction says, well, wait a minute. How could this guy, Jesus, do these things if he weren't from God? He must be from God. This is a surprising argument from a religious expert because all throughout Scripture, we see ungodly people doing amazing, powerful things. For example, when God sends Moses to set the people free, he goes before Pharaoh and he does this thing with his staff. God gives his, him power. He throws the staff down and it becomes what? It becomes a snake. Well, the Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing. They throw their staffs down and they become snakes. Their power is not from God. But it's real. Now, of course, Moses' snake grubs theirs up. He eats it. God's power is more powerful. But there are other powers, right? And that's why the scripture tells us, you know, don't go to psychics and things like that. Not because they're, they're not real, but because they are real. And the power is just not from God. So just because Jesus can heal a guy doesn't mean he's from God. So this, again, is ironic because these experts should have known better. And then, this is, this is really crazy. Watch this. These leaders can't even agree with each other, right? Some of them say he's from God. Some say he can't be. And then, because they can't agree, they turn to the blind man who's uneducated, as far as we know. And they say, so, well, what do you say? How are you healed? What do you say about the man who, who healed you? Watch how opposition helps the man believe okay now he's on the spot he has to think about the evidence he considers you know I was born blind and then this guy comes around spits on the ground and puts mud on my eyes tells me to wash and now I can see 
I think maybe, I think maybe this guy Jesus is a prophet. Ooh, opposition increases the man's awareness of who Jesus is. You remember just a few verses earlier, he said, the man Jesus healed me. Now Jesus' status is upgraded, right? Now he's maybe a prophet. The man, because of opposition, had to think on his feet. And he realized, ah, Jesus is more than I thought he was. Now, of course, the guy doesn't fully get Jesus yet because Jesus is more than a prophet. But his understanding is increasing. Two things are going on here. First, we, the readers, are being confronted with this evidence. You know, it's a fun story to read. But John didn't put it there for fun only. I think he's a good writer. But this is a real story that really happened. And what's supposed to happen is when we read this, we're supposed to say, wait a minute. Yeah, Jesus is pretty special, isn't he? He's got to be more than a man. In fact, we've read eight chapters of John so far. We've seen Jesus' works and heard Jesus' claims. And with this man, we're being asked, well, who do you say Jesus is? No, I'm serious. Who do you say Jesus is? That's what's going on. John is asking us, what do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe? I wouldn't be true to the scripture if I didn't say this. Unbelief is dangerous. Unbelief is dangerous. John is showing us that right here. If we turn out the flashlight and ignore Jesus, the bear is still on the trail. And it wants to eat you. Look what happens to the Pharisees when they choose not to believe. So far, they're being referred to as Pharisees. They have a choice. They're being confronted with evidence. Watch what happens in verse 18. The Jews did not believe it of him. John stops referring to them as Pharisees. And now they're known as the Jews. Remember, this is so important. In John's gospel, he, the Jews, is a technical term. It's not an ethnic term. In John's gospel, when you read the Jews, it means the religious leaders who were stubborn and would not believe in Jesus. They became the opponents of Jesus. The Pharisees were just men who had a choice to accept the truth of the light of the world or turn off the flashlight. Their unbelief sealed their fate and now in the story they're known as the Jews. Okay, the second thing going on here is that John is showing us that when we stand up to opposition, we see more clearly. If it works for the blind man, won't it work for us? Now, I don't know about you, but I often think before I can say something about a person or about a subject, I've got to know everything before I can say anything. Right? And this is, I think, a product of our kind of our Western world where everything is specialized now. You've got a specialist for every little thing in life. What we become less specialized at, I think, is common sense, but that's a whole other topic. We become so specialized that we think we have to know everything before we can say anything. And I think it's especially true, right? Let's just be honest. I think it's especially true when we're talking about Jesus. 
there's a false idea that you need to have a theological degree before you can really talk about Jesus with your friends or something. Let me tell you, I've got a theological degree. All it does for me helps me ask better questions and helps me see I don't know as much as I thought I did before I started seminary. That's all it does. So it really doesn't help you with being a witness. <laughs> Part of following Jesus, a central element of being a disciple of Christ is telling others about Christ. It's not like a side dish. It's not a peripheral thing. It's not something that just the pastor does or just that one person in the congregation with the gift of evangelism. I know we all want to think that. Heck, I want to think that. I, I pray, Lord, bring the evangelist to the church so I don't have to do it all. That's not being a disciple. Part of being a disciple is so being thrilled with the good news, the light in our world, how God has changed us that we are able to share it with others. Now, I'm not talking about being on a street sign with a sign. and you, you know me better than that. But to be able to communicate through word and deed the wonderful things God has done, that is part of being a disciple. That's what Jesus is saying. I save you, I send you. And it's actually a great privilege to be included in the redemptive work of God. I can't think of a better job. Um, it's amazing. Now, I like the movie Goodfellas. I'm not saying you should like it. I'm not advocating it. I think there's over 300 F-bombs in it, and that's some kind of record or something. That's not the point. In the movie Goodfellas, it's, it is based on a true story of a gangster who gets way too tied up in the mob. Like, you can not get too tied up, but anyway. He gets, he gets to the point where his life, his family's life is in danger. So what he does, he and his wife, they turn themselves in, and they enter the witness protection program. Basically, they get freedom. They get this new life, new names, new place to live, everything. But the weird thing about the witness protection program is it's like a false reality. They can never share in public about their experience, about their transformation. Everything's hush-hush. It's this safe world where everything's kind of taken care of for you from the outside. Now, when Jesus, the light of the world, breaks into our lives, he has the power to change us. Not just make us uh, see if we're blind, but to change our attitudes, to heal us of past brokenness, to make us new people. In fact, we sang a song earlier that Jesus will change your name. But what he does not want us to do is take that new life and stash it away in a witness protection program. He wants us to break out of the witness protection program. He wants us to spread the news that his abundant life, eternal life, is available to everyone. When we testify to what we've witnessed, it often brings opposition, which, check this out, is a chance for more belief. Watch how this works. The Jews couldn't make sense of this healing. So they tried to deny it ever happened. In fact, now their tactic is to say, hey, this blind guy, he was never blind in the first place. That has to be it. And in order to find out, what we're going to do is call his mom and dad in, and we're going we're gonna to interrogate them. Okay? So they talked to his parents. His parents are under opposition now. Why? Because there was a standing order that if anyone said Jesus was the Christ or was anyone special, they would be 
cast out of the synagogue. It's a very powerful word in the Greek, ekbalo. It means it's violent. It's like cast out, like a bouncer, right, at a nightclub, like throwing you out of the synagogue. So they're under opposition, and they have a lot to lose. Let me explain, try and explain how big a deal this was. In the first century, the synagogue was everything. Like, if you get kicked out of letter streets, like, let's say, um, you know, Jim, Big Jim, he, he ekabalos you out, right? Like, if you don't get scuffed up down the stairs, realistically, like, you could go to one of many other great churches here in town, right? That's, I think, that's a problem, and that's a whole other topic. <laughs> but you could go anywhere in this town and, um, and just plug in with another church. Or let's say you, you were sick of church. Like, I'm sick of being ekbaloed from churches, and so I'm just not going to go to church anymore. You know, you'd be fine in Bellingham. Like, you could do your job, and, you know, you might bump into some church people at Costco where they all hang out on Sundays. But you could go to the Costco down in Skagit County, right? You would be fine. You would be fine. Well... I don't think you'd be fine if you weren't plugged in this church, but that's just my opinion. Anyway, so you could get by. But in the first century, the synagogue, right, was the center of life. Israel was a theocracy. So government, worship, social structures, everything was meshed together. So let's say you, uh, you get egg-ballowed, you're out of the synagogue. Your social circles are made up of people from synagogue. The guy or woman you work for, they go to synagogue. Guess what? If you even have a job anymore, oh, you're not treated very well. Or let's say you own a business. Your customers go to the synagogue. They know what's going on. You start to lose business. To be cast out, to be cast out from the synagogue is like losing life as you know it. You'd be better off just moving somewhere else, far, far away, where people never knew you. So the parents are under opposition. They have a lot to lose. Okay? They have a lot to lose. You know, a lot of people in this world have a lot to lose for standing up for Christ. I, just two months ago, people were executed, execution style in North Korea, by the government, not by mobsters, for having Bibles. Routinely in Sudan, over the last couple years, families of Christians have been crucified. Okay? The worst thing that's ever happened to me has been, uh, you know, social snubs. And for many of us, I would suspect it's about the same thing. We don't really know, at least in this setting, this type of opposition. The parents choose to enter the witness protection program. They say, yeah, this is our son. He was born blind. But we don't know anything about it. We don't know this Jesus guy. They choose the honor of people rather than the honor of God. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever held back from talking about Jesus because you were embarrassed? Afraid of others, what others might think? Maybe you held back because you thought, I just don't know enough. I have. Jesus has changed you. If that statement is true, you know enough to talk about Jesus. The man born blind and his parents know the same facts. Guy was born blind, 
This guy, Jesus, comes in, spits on the ground, wipes it on his eyes. He can see. They know the same facts. The parents don't stand up to opposition. And as far as we know, now here's the danger. They never believe. As far as we know, John never brings them back in the story. The man born blind stands up to opposition by simply saying what little he does know. And the authorities begin to look like fools right before our eyes. More importantly, the man himself comes to trust Jesus and receives eternal life. After I got out of the Coast Guard, Corey and I were living in San Rafael, California. And I wanted to go back to school. I really felt there was a call on my life for ministry, so I needed to get an undergraduate degree before I could go to grad school. And living in California as a Washington native, I had to do some uh, basic education classes just to get my degree down there. So I went to a junior college, and I had to do these humanities credits. And so I thought, this will be really cool. I will take this Old Testament class and this New Testament class. And so I, I went in there. It was the same teacher for both. I was very excited until the first day of class. And I knew that this semester would be a challenge. The man teaching the class is a renowned Hebrew scholar, uh, but he doesn't believe in God. Doesn't believe in God. And in fact, he was on the Jesus Seminar, if you're familiar with that group. Um, what, really, what really hurt me was I was a little older. I had done the Coast Guard, so I think I was, I don't know, 26 or so. There were running start kids in there, 17, 18, 19, who had never gone to church. And in the beginning of class, this man asked, well, why are you here? Several of them said, because we've never been exposed to the Bible. We want to learn what it's about. And they were learning for the first time under this jaded and cynical man. Now, there were also a number of Christians in the group. Several of them argued every single point this guy was making. And they wilted like flowers. I mean, this guy is a, a scholar, an intellectual giant. All the Christians were gone. They took the witness protection program after three weeks, except me and one other guy. We decided we'd pray before class and choose our battles wisely, which meant hardly saying anything. But every once in a while, this professor would leave an opening to talk about a certain scripture or a passage in an experiential way. And I would have an opportunity to not say anything technical, because I didn't know about that stuff, but to say what Jesus had done in my life. Okay? Halfway through the semester, we're at a break, and there's a middle-aged French woman there who is a, an exchange student. She says, you believe in this Jesus, don't you? Yeah? She says, I, I don't know. I've never heard about this stuff before. She believed maybe in France, right? Um, she said, I don't know what I think about Jesus now. She said, I know when you talk about him in class, it's like you know him. And you look alive. Now, I did not know a lick of Greek or Hebrew. I'm in junior college, right? I've never taken a religion class before. I could never compete with this guy on an intellectual basis. I had no training. I just knew a few ways that Jesus had done something in my life. 
And when I had opportunity, I was able to share. There were lots of opportunities in that class I didn't share, by the way. I'm not trying to say that I was like all courageous. But there were a few times. And guess what? God's gracious. And I don't know what happened to that woman. But that might have been her one step closer to Christ. What is the definition of evangelism to the Evangelical Covenant Church? Partnering with the Holy Spirit to help a person take one step closer to knowing Jesus. You can do that. That's what we're called to do. It's another cool literary thing. In verse 12, the people ask the man born blind, where is he? I don't know, says the man. The very first question, remember in John's gospel that people ask Jesus, where are you staying? Where are you abiding? All throughout John's gospel thus far, we've seen that Jesus abides in the Father. And now we see he abides in one more place. When you are experiencing opposition, he's with you. Oh, that's good news. I'm getting goosebumps. Jesus is with you in opposition. He is the light, not your best arguments, not your education, not your intellect. He is the light, and he wants to shine out of you. Notice that there's nothing you really have to do there. Just be available. That's gospel. The religious leaders don't get satisfactory, satisfactory answers from the parents, so they call the man back again, and they ask him the same questions. How did this happen? Tell us how he healed you. This is awesome. You can't help but laugh at this point now, because they begin to look more foolish, and this uneducated man begins to look wiser and wiser. They say, we're disciples of Moses. This man, we don't know where he's from. Now, this is where you get in the action. Remember what I talked about irony? How does irony work? It's because you, the reader, have information that those religious leaders don't have. You've read the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Where is Jesus from? We know where he's from. He's from God. He's from heaven. So these religious experts who are arguing against Jesus being anything special are saying, we don't know where he's from. Well, guess what? You know more than they do. He is from God. Laugh. No, <laughs> it's, supposed to be, it's supposed to be funny as we encounter this in the story. Irony helps us believe. And this is great. Well, this is the amazing thing. You don't know where he's from, but he opened my eyes. Like, who cares where he's from? I can see because Jesus did it. Are you guys dense? Yes. Yes, they are. They are what Isaiah is talking about in 42. Jeremiah 5 talks about this. When we set up idols that aren't really God, what happens? God makes us like them, having eyes we will not see, having ears we will not hear. We need to take this as a warning too. Do we really see and hear? You know what the amazing thing is? Not the healing. Not that the blind man believes. But that they don't believe. All this evidence. 
That's the amazing thing. So finally, the leaders who claimed the man wasn't even born blind, remember that argument back? Now they say he is born blind. And they say, you know, they've got all this education and their theological answers haven't worked and their education doesn't help them, so they resort to what every man resorts to. Name-calling. Name-calling. They say, you were born in your sins. What do you know? You're lecturing us. Didn't they just ask him his opinion? Uh, anyway, this is really funny. Um, so finally, they cast him out. They ekbalo this man from the synagogue. Opposition? He's kicked out. He gets kicked out for standing up for what really happened. John put this story... He had the whole life of Jesus to choose from. He wrote only 21 chapters. He included this story to help us believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And that through trust in Him, we might have eternal life. How does this story affect you? Has it helped open your eyes a little bit wider? If you do this, if you testify... You will be ekbaloed. You may be cast out from friendships. You may be snubbed at work. Maybe. But that word ekbalo, we've seen that before. John chapter 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I certainly will not ekbalo. I certainly will not cast out. And this is where we choose. You know, do we take this risk and talk about Jesus and maybe get cast out from certain social circles or even family relationships sometimes? Do we trust Jesus enough that He won't cast us out? That eternal life is worth it? Do we keep the flashlight on and say, no, there really is a bear there. And I need Jesus to deal with that. Maybe your eyes are already opened. Maybe Jesus has changed your life and is changing your life right now. How might you leave the witness protection program? Let me say that again. How might we leave the witness protection program? I'm in it with you. I oftentimes cower away from saying things when I have opportunity. This is a struggle for me. This is a hard passage for me. How might we share this good news with people in our lives? What words and deeds might help our friends and neighbors see? Our coworkers, family members? How will people know that Jesus is the light of the world from relating to us? I say this with, with grace as one who's struggling with you. And I say this with a half smile because so much I know of what you are about is serving. That's what you, by coming to this church, by being part of this missional church, you're already doing these things. I'm just, I'm just reading the scripture and saying, I think Jesus wants us to step up our game because doing good deeds in our culture Let's face it, it's pretty darn popular. It'll get you on Oprah. Talking about Jesus, that's a little harder to do. 
we're going to transition to prayers of healing.